This is Impressive Growth Masters, the podcast created by marketers for marketers. Keep up to date with everything from retail to tech and beyond. Join your host, Robert Tadros, in conversation with CEOs, CMOs, and the true masters of business and growth marketing. Luigi, welcome to Growth Masters, mate. We've just talked a lot about you know, <laughs> Dave and Russ and those guys. So let's talk a little bit about you, right? So you're currently yeah, the, you're the CEO, co-founder, and actually head of growth. There's three titles there. I'll dig a little <laughs> bit deeper into that. <laughs> and just to add another layer to it, you also host the Sales IQ podcast, right? The New yeah. Age Sales Enablement uh, Expert. Man, you're like highly regarded in the learning and development industry leading major transformation projects and you know with some of Australia's most respected companies and again I want to unpack that a little bit you've got a very strong focus on like sales enablement and you've, you know when yeah. you co-founded sales IQ back in 2013 to assist organizations and everything that you've just mentioned there right like building that effective go-to-market strategy and you know the the sales development solution because I, I know for even from my perspective in this agency we can do everything to get the lead over to the, to the business, but then we lose all control, Yeah, right? And especially if there's no CRM in place and, and, and all that sort of stuff, right? So, mate, welcome. Welcome. Yeah, there's thanks. a lot here to unpack. So, yeah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. I'm, a, um, you know, seeing Impressive everywhere. It's an incredible brand. Uh, you know, it's, it's been awesome to see what you guys are doing, and I can't wait to see what you do in the US when you, when you take on that market. It's, uh, you know... Uh, once uh, someone once said to me, "It's pretty ballsy to call your to, you call your own company impressive, right? It's, <laughs> it's a pretty bold move." Um, yeah. And I said, "Yeah, well, that's right. You know, and that's it's, it's in everything that we do. It's in our DNA. You know, it's in our yeah. values. It's in our core principles. It's in it's, it flows through our blood. You know, everything we do is is impressive. You know, as I said, it's one of our values is be impressive. You know, be impressive about everything that you do, both internal and external, in communication and professionalism and sales and strategy and in you know yeah. communication with your peers. Yeah, so thank you, mate. I, I really appreciate that. But uh, let's talk a little bit about you, right? So I'm keen to, to, to hear your journey. You started 2013 and here we are, yeah. 2021. Give me the two-minute version. <laughs> two-minute version. So <laughs> I think the two-minute version is I fell into sales at a very young age and lucky I did because I struggled at school. It wasn't like our, our good mate, Dave, who was a nerd and got straight A's on all of his, uh, on all of his assignments. But I struggled at school. I fell into sales in a call center. I learned sales in the old school boiler room type of model, right? Um, the old Telstra or telecom tel pads, not yep. even an auto dialer, man, just list, pen, ruler, go, selling double APT. Your leads came in, uh, in, a, in a rubber banded <laughs> file about this big. <laughs> It was desk. old school, and you got it. You knew you get. You know, you got new leads when the when the guy gave a list, and people already crossed those names off, and they're like, "Hey, it's fresh leads." So it was it was a completely different environment to one we're living in today. But again, luckily that I fell into that role, and I just I was good at it. I enjoyed it. Um, I loved the the process, the you know the challenge of being trying to engage with people in a cold environment and then building a relationship and get and, and working with them to buy something from me. I just felt it. It was awesome. Fast forward a whole bunch of years and I went from selling in the consumer space, selling in B2B, low margin products to my biggest sale was, you know, between 10 to 20 mil. Um, I've worked on some sales of that size. 
with some pretty large organizations leading some pretty large transformations. So the learning that I have experienced so far in my career has been insane. Why I started Sales IQ, uh, just some things happened in my life. I made some changes, but fundamentally what I, what I realized was everything that I'd gone through in my career so far, I'd, I'd learned by doing, right? Rejection, putting deals together that fell through, um, trying to chase enterprise sales. I read a whole bunch of books like, you know, this was my, you know, the, one of the, called the New Strategic Selling. It was a book that I used to get my first sort of $10 million sale across the line. And I loved it. Mm. I used the principles in it. And then I realized that, look, there's a lot of sales training out there, but there's a lot of sales training out there from people that have been there, done that, and they're not still doing it. They're not practitioners. So mm. I wanted to start something based on the philosophy that everything that I, that I empower others and enable others to do, I, I'm doing myself. And that's a core principle that's still to this day, running out, running outbound, building inbound campaigns, whatever it is, they're models that I'm using myself to this day. So it's mm. not as if I've gone to that point where I'm, you know, teaching others the A, B and C of selling saying, this is what I did. No, this is what I do. This is how I book, you know, net new opportunities with C-level executives of unicorn based businesses. This is the exact methodology that I follow. Um, and this is how you can follow the same methodology. So that's what we do at Sales IQ. We enable organizations to empower their sellers to generate more net new opportunities for themselves through targeted um, outreach. And we also allow organizations to improve their uh, lead to sale conversions mm -hmm. by implementing best practice uh, inbound lead cadences, et cetera. Because a lot of businesses think, you know, I can spend a bunch of cash generating leads, but that those leads aren't necessarily high intent ready to buy. And if you don't have a process to engage with them, then often your conversion is quite low. Mm. And the data shows us that 80% of inbound leads, it takes them nine to 13 attempts to, to just to get them on the phone. Yeah. But most companies stop at 2.1, right? And so they're kind of the two key problems we help companies solve. Um, we work with a whole range of companies from small, medium, right through to some of your large enterprise-based organizations. So that's a bit about me, man. Awesome, man. Look, I want to, you know what, I'm going to address the elephant in the room here, right? Because uh, look, and I've come from a similar environment to yourself as well. You know, old school, you know, I started a call center as well and kind of worked my way up through a corporate environment, ended up, you know, falling into the marketing space back when sales and marketing was the one role, right? So the elephant in the room here is the sales has negative connotations attached to it, right? <laughs> yeah. The minute you talk about a sales team or this is a sales rep or even using the word business development in your title, everyone thinks, here we go, Grease sales yeah. guy is going to try and sell me some stuff, right? And I am sure that, you know, and I'm, this is a big assumption, but you would probably face this a lot in your environment. Absolutely. I mean, every every workshop I kick off with a new team, the very first question I ask them is I put up a, you know, a slide and it says, what's a thought, image, or word that comes to mind when you think of a salesperson? And 99% of the people in the session, all salespeople will say negative things. <laughs> Sleazy, you know, the... All negative, right? Wolf, Wolf, Wolf yeah. <laughs> so, so that's what they're saying about themselves, right? Which is which is pretty pretty powerful stuff when a seller is saying negative things about themselves. And yeah. there's been a report that came out recently of the most trusted versus untrusted professions, and sales was second last. The last was politicians, then there were sales, right? Yeah. So, the reality is, and even HubSpot had a really interesting report that there's a trust gap between the buyers and the sellers still today. Um, I think we've gone a long way from the days of the Jordan Belforts and, and those type of sales methodologies. 
but I still think there are a lot of sellers that don't do themselves. You know, they don't create the best brand for themselves because of the way that they conduct themselves in the market. It's not necessarily meaning that they they've got negative intent, but they're more focused on their own needs versus others. So absolutely, there is a trust gap. And that's the very first thing we need to differentiate before anything is I'm a sales professional, Rob. You know, I consider myself a professional. Um, I research my, my the people that I work with. I research the industry. I have an expert, you know, point of view. I know how I help the audience that I'm engaging with. And I bring value to them before expecting them to even, you know, consider buying from me. Um, the sales professional mindset is very different from a salesperson. And that's, that's the very first sort of foundational element we try to bring into any of our programs. Yeah, that's, a, that's very powerful stuff. It's very, very powerful. Um, and it's taken you, I mean, what, how many years now? When you start, you've been in the space. You're learning, man. <laughs> My whole life. Like since, look, I was sold, you know, hustled in school, but let's say the first legitimate um, role that I took, you know, I was 17 years old. So I'm 39 and I've been doing this my whole life. And, you know, there's some incredible books, but I think the best thing, I don't think I'm ever going to get to a point and hopefully that doesn't occur uh, that I get to a point of, you know, where I consider myself a master or an expert because then the ability for me to learn is going to be limited. Mm. Um, that's one of the things, I, you know, I've kind of reinvented myself these last few years because just the whole shift in the market the market's evolving. It enables us. I'm learning more about marketing now than selling, but it's making me a better sales professional. So I think the reality is, and technology is changing it as well, right? So the way in which we use technology as sellers is different to what it was, you know, two, three years ago. So mm. that's one of the great things. I think I've got so much more learning to do, man. I think I feel like I've only just scratched the surface. I think we've moved away from always be closing to always be learning, right? <laughs> Absolutely, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get asked the question a lot. I'm going to ask you this question, right? Do you think that you can learn the art of selling or is it, is it something I guess that you can learn or teach or is it something that is just, it's, it's natural to an individual? Look, I think there's elements that will come natural for people. You know, you look at the ability to engage with, you know, engage with others and talk to them and, and, and go out networking and all that sort of stuff. You know, some people are more comfortable to perform that task versus others who are a little bit more reserved. But that doesn't necessarily mean one's better than the other. I think if we look today, a good sales professional need to exhibit both. They need to be highly analytical. They need to be also expressive. Historically, the expressive type of social style would be the one that would see better results because they were extroverted. They'd go out there, they'd network, they'd build relationships, et cetera, et cetera. But that only gets you so far. And now great sellers need to have that analytical mindset because they've got to bring so much more to the table, especially in a market that we're saturated with choice, right? Absolutely learn the art of selling. <laughs> you can learn it. And again, I'm, I'm learning new skills today. There are so many things that sellers can learn if they're open to it and you can adapt your style. You know, the very, something that I learned quite early, lost my biggest ever account, you know, when I was mid twenties with a company called Ream. Remember the good old installer Ream? One boy with a detail, but I'd got the CEO to sign it, the GM to sign it, the GM of HR to sign it. Then I had an ops director or ops manager I had to engage with as part of the project. He was a high analytical driver and I was a high driver, no detail. He wanted the detail. I didn't have the detail. Next thing I know, we're in a bit of an argument, contract canceled, million dollar contract gone, right? And at that stage, I learned, I was pissed off for a while, I blamed him, but then I picked up a book on this stuff on disc and realized there were certain behaviors that I had exhibited that were, that created 
conflict with others. Mm. So I took the time to really understand how could I adapt my style? How could I turn a weakness of my style into a strength? Now that analytical side that was my weakness is now a strength. Mm. That's the art of selling. I made the decision to learn, adapt and change my style to accommodate others. And I go by the, you know, the platinum rule, treat others the way they want to be treated, not the golden rule. Mm. So that's what it's all about, right? Trust is still paramount in sales. If there's no trust, their ability to help a person arrive at a point of decision to choose us is limited. Mm. You know, and I refer work to Russ, one of your, you know, team members, because I trust him. Mm. I, I trust him. Like I'm, I trust that he'll deliver, you know, on my brand, on my promise that I have with my clients. And it's a big thing because I, my clients are, are very important to me. So for me to have trust to bring an external company in and say, just take it. There's no we commission all, we, there. There's no payback. Yeah. Right. We all do business with those that we trust, right? Yeah, absolutely. It yeah. doesn't matter whether you're a C-suite, doesn't matter if it's enterprise, doesn't matter if it's small business. There has to be trust between two parties. Otherwise, you're pushing shit uphill. Right. It's, yeah. It's not going to go and anymore. I bought absolutely. And I bought Russ before I bought Impressive. That's not right. that I didn't like the Impressive brand, but, but you Russ buy from people, right? <laughs> we don't buy from the brand. We buy from people that represent the brand. So first of all, we yeah. need to buy into that person and trust yeah. that person. Absolutely, man. Very, very powerful stuff. What's one tip that you can give? And I know I'm getting early into tips here, but what would be one tip for a sales individual or even a sales team on on what they can do? I guess to to improve or be a bit more authentic in their approach or, you know, build, I guess, that trust or that rapport earlier on in a conversation rather than after the fact. Because I agree with you. I think, you know, when you look at certain disc profiles, you've got ones that are very persuasive and it's all, you know, they're somewhat greedy, right? It's all about them. It's all about their commission check. It's not necessarily about what's the best approach or the strategy for the customer. And they tend to, you know, go down the persuading the customer, I guess, down a particular direction or down a particular path, which is not necessarily the most appropriate solution for that customer yep. or that client, right? So even just having, like thinking about that, you know, like what would be some of the, uh, you know, one or two tips, I guess, for our listeners right now in a sales seat that they can adopt or, or, or learn, right, to better themselves? Yeah. The first thing I'd say is you're absolutely right. You know, nobody likes to engage with somebody that has a strong level of commission breath, yeah? Mm-hmm. You can smell it. You don't feel like the person's got your best interests at heart. They only want to meet their own needs. The very first thing I'd encourage all sellers listening to this is to actually flip it and go, right, I'm going to forget about what I do now. And I'm going to think about what is, who is the customer that I'm here to serve Mm. or my buyer persona? What is happening in their world today? What are their KPIs, their KRAs, the things that they are, their performance is measured on? And what are the challenges that stop them from achieving their goals? And then ask yourself three questions. Why should they change? Why should they consider changing now? And why should they even contemplate choosing me? If they can just come up, you know, with a bit of information around what I've just shared, it'll help them think differently about the way they approach them, right? Because everything we do is to serve somebody and help them through the buying process. And, you know, we often get taught in sales as a sales process, but we forget the most important process is the process people take to buy. They have to go through a journey. Just because somebody responds to a Facebook ad and puts their details doesn't mean they've got a high intent to buy. It just means something on the ad has connected with them. And it's our role as a seller to understand what is it in the ad that connected with them and how can I understand what their motivation is, what their intrinsic intent is, and then how can I connect what I do to what they need? And if I don't, like if I actually don't have something 
that will help them achieve a better outcome, then I need to tell them I'm not the right person for them. And that is the difference between a sales professional and a salesperson. You go to the doctor because the doctor has a level of expertise and you need their help to solve a problem. And you wouldn't have a lot of confidence in the doctor if before they even assessed you, they diagnosed a problem, right? They said, hey, you need to go off and take this. This is the magic pill. And you're like, doc, you, don't even, you haven't even checked me out, man. They're like, this is it. You know, Your confidence would completely drop. So we need to flip it now. We need to be, we need to be um, as you know, the, the number one tip is if they can just flip and really think about what does my persona, what is it that they, they're measured against from a performance perspective? What are their goals and objectives? And we need to move away from the demographic elements. You know, the demographic attributes, age, education, that matters, but not in a sales conversation. Mm. Sales conversation, the only thing that matters is the outcome they're trying to achieve. People don't buy what we do, they buy the outcome we help them achieve. And so that's, that's, that's probably that, my biggest gap is. And that's probably where the, and linking that back to the comment you made earlier around like, you know, sales professional nowadays have to be more analytical, right? And this is where the analytical part comes in because you need to analyze the situation. You need to analyze the emotional triggers, right? Yeah. And there, there is a, you know, somewhat of a high level of social IQ that is required. I'm not sure if you would agree with that or not, right? But being able to understand the Absolutely. emotional intelligence of someone that is in front of you, you know, like you said, I've just connected with an ad and submitted my inquiry. What was it that drove that emotional intent, I guess, to put in that, to put in that inquiry in the yeah. first place? And unless you understand that, you're just pushing a product rather than trying to educate yeah. or, or offer a solution, right? It's funny. I audit, you know, hundreds of calls for clients and uh, for companies spending, you know, five grand a month on ads, just companies spending, you know, five, 600,000 on ads a month. And one of the biggest things that I've noticed is they, the, the biggest challenge when I do that audit is the very first question they ask is, do you have any questions I can answer? Or how can I, how can I help you? Which does not actually understand or determine the motivation to the inquiry. Yes. And again, this is why we need to flip it um, because, it, because that's a very reactive process. And so, you know, that's why it's important to really understand that by persona. And you just, you mentioned something that's really important, right? And, and I've, I've spent so much time researching this stuff. It's that 95% of the decisions our buyers will make comes from an emotional state, mm. right? And they justify the decision with logic. Mm. So when we hear that price, you know, people go, oh, it's we're too expensive. Well, that's usually a stall. It's not the true objection. Because again, people justify the investment they make if they see value in it and there's an emotion driving that decision, right? Well, if you go to the dentist and the dentist says, well, mate, we've got a tooth that's you know, decaying and it needs to come out, you're not going, oh, you're too expensive. I'm going to go to another dentist down the road, right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, but it's also like the, the great example of that is when people buy real estate, they go into an auction, they have a, they have a budget, right? Yeah. They say, no, I'm not going to move past it. I've made of mine, this happens here. I'm not going to move past it. He buys the house. He spent an extra you know, X. It was like 20% more, which is material. But then his conversation to me was, he was justifying his, his decision to me saying, but I'm going to be in here for at least 10 years. So, you know, my market value in 10 years <laughs> is going to be greater. But if you'd asked him the day before, it was, nah, this is, this is my absolute cap. Yeah. But because emotion started driving that decision, then he justified the decision he made with that logic. Right. But it wasn't a logical decision driving that. It was his emotional decision driving that. And that's what a lot of real estate agents love, right? Because once they know, once you're in that property or once they see, it's probably why they're actually struggling a lot at the moment during COVID, right? Because they're, <laughs> they're missing that emotional attachment to something. 
you know, to, to, the, to the property, which typically, you know, I've worked in the, with my fair share of uh, agents over the years, and there are quite a few. They'll always say, we need to make sure that the partner is there, right? Because mm. that is, generally speaking, the emotional one that comes in and is emotionally yeah. attached and is the link Absolutely. between the, the, the seller, who is the agent, and generally the, 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 the one that's actually paying the bills, right? Yeah. <laughs> and we need that conduit in the middle, which is the emotional one that is making Absolutely. the emotional decision, not the logical decision. Yeah, and it's such an interesting paradigm because, like, if you look at what your agency does, your agency doesn't help companies put an ad up. Mm. That's not what right. they're buying. Mm. They're buying an outcome. They're buying more customers so that they can grow their business, they can hire more people, they can grow in a new market. There's a whole range of outcomes that they're trying to achieve. Mm. The performance ad or the marketing that you do is just the function of helping them get to that desired state. Yeah. But yet so many sellers focus on the feature part of the conversation, not the outcome part. And we don't focus on the outcome part often because we don't understand what our buyers are trying to achieve. So then our fallback is let me tell you about what we do and hope something sticks, right? That's when we throw up on our prospects. It's always we, 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 we. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Rather than the client or the prospect, you know, what are their problems? Yeah. What are you, what, what are you actually trying to solve? No, that's a very, very valid point. I mean, I, yeah. I totally resonate that. It makes, makes, makes a lot of sense. Mm. So your process, I guess, is to, uh, I'm assuming you'll come in, you'll sort of analyze the environment. Um, yeah. I guess, understand the, the, the organization or the structure of the team and then sort of like where to from there, you know, if you've got say five, six, seven, you know, seven people in a team, you know, what, what's your sort of initial approach to it? And then what, what is the outcome that you, that you hope to achieve? Yeah, good question. So again, it's dependent on the type of business. So if it's, if it's a predominantly, you know, a business that's set up an inside sales team, mm. it's more lead gen, you know, they're filling the funnel with the, you know, MQLs, SQLs, hamster, hamster wheel going, then usually it's more of an inside um, sales model that we have to build. We have to help them really build out their call frameworks, their cadences and sequences, because often the cadences don't add value to the prospect. Because again, you think about it, the data says, you know, 80% of prospects engage between nine and 13 attempts. People go, shit, that's a lot of times I've got to reach out to them, right? Text message, email, phone, LinkedIn. And if you just start pushing out messages for the sake of hitting those touch points, you're not adding any value, you're becoming a nuisance. So it's pretty important that you build an inbound cadence that is actually adding value. It's creating more awareness. You're still Mm. educating them Mm. until they get to that point of, yes, I'm ready to talk to you, Rob. So you know, that's the very first thing we do is we understand what that buyer's journey looks like. What is the cadence that's required to provide that journey to that prospect? And then how do we educate the sales team to actually execute on that? So that's one piece. If it's an outbound structure, if we're talking to sellers that, you know, need to create more pipeline for themselves. Again, the most, the biggest challenge and the biggest gap sellers are facing today is lack of quality pipeline. We see it in every business from Salesforce, from HubSpot, any business right now needs more pipeline, qualified quality pipeline, right? Um, there's only so much marketing can generate. And as you know, it gets to a point where there's some customers out there, they're just not going to engage with an ad. So we've got to proactively reach out to them. And that's what we enable sellers to do. We teach them how and we enable them how to go to a C-level executive with a point of view, a valid point of view, and a reason why they should engage using trigger events or um, you know, a particular narrative it'll actually compel the prospect to take action and respond. So they're the two places that we work. So there's a little bit of tech stack and also a little bit of human element to this as well, right? 
because you can have, you have a blended. Yeah, that's right. Um, it, it is a more of a blended approach, I guess, to, to be able to, to solve or understand the, the, the main concerns, right, or the main challenges yeah. within the team. Yeah, and do you, do you typically find that like you go? No, no. I was just going to say, yeah. you know, that whole technology piece. If if you're not embracing, look, historically, especially when I first started in sales, we kind of didn't need tech, right? Had a phone, door knocked, like we did things pretty pretty old school. And then it was somebody else's responsibility to bring in the tech. It was somebody else's responsibility for building the reports. If you're a seller now and you you don't know your conversion metrics and you can't pull a report out of your CRM. You can't leverage tech to help enrich your data or send video messages or whatever. If, you, if you're not in that space, it's a dangerous space to be in as a seller. Yeah. Because that's the space of it could become redundant. Like a business will eventually say the value you bring is actually not there anymore. Mate, one of my biggest hates at the moment and, and one that I struggle with is salespeople that don't know how to use this thing. <laughs> They hide behind, and this is not within this agency, but just within organizations, whether I, you know, consult or I sit on a couple of boards or, you know, just get exposed to certain teams. You know, I ask a very simple question. When was the last time? Because, oh, I can't get a hold of this guy. You know, he's not replying to my emails or, you know, I don't have enough leads or, you know, I need more leads and I don't know what to do. I was like, when was the last time you asked one of your clients for a referral? Yeah. Go, uh, well, I haven't. I said, well, maybe there's a place to start. The second thing is, I was like, when was the last time you actually picked up the phone and had a conversation with someone? And you're like, well, you know, we're all busy these days. So I'll send an email and they can respond in their own time, right? And it's like, mate, these phones have literally become redundant. You yeah. know, they're only good for one thing and that's social media. So I guess the question I'm going to ask you is like, what is some of the biggest challenges that you come across when teaching like some of the basic principles of selling? Yeah, core reluctance is a, is a continued challenge. You know, it's funny when the pandemic hit, um, email emails being sent from companies and sellers just went through the roof. You probably mm. saw this for some reason. Everybody thought we'll just start sending more emails, but email open rate completely dropped. Right, and then also search search volumes. Like um, we saw the data that crashed, so we saw a lot of people stop searching for stuff because mm. everybody didn't know what was happening. But the phone answer rates actually went up. Now. Um, <laughs> And it's funny because I was speaking to, we had, uh, or I watched Adobe, we had the managing director of APAC for Adobe on one of our sessions last week. And he says he rejects 99% of the outreach he gets from sellers. But the 1% he does accept is when somebody actually calls him with a really strong point of view and a narrative that's focused on what is important to him, which is either growth or bottom line return. And I often, again, you know, the biggest challenge when talking to sellers, yes, I'll email it or... You know, I'll send them a LinkedIn message, et cetera. But the, but the reality is the phone is still an effective way and it should be part of any, any outreach or in, even inbound more so. The phone is a, is, a, is a key part of the channels that you need to use to engage your prospect. And again, if you're new to sales and you, you know, are like my kids who sort of prefer to text versus phone, Get used to making calls because it's super important, especially now people have been working from home. They're not answering their landline. They're getting too many emails. Phones are great cut through. Um, and if, you, if, you, if you're a mature salesperson that has you know, stopped using the phone, it's, it's got to be part of your, it's got to be like part of your skill set. And, and phones are a key part of the process. And people answer. We've tested it. We, you know, we've cold called you know, Andy Penn from Telstra and he answers the phone. Right, we've actually tested calling some of the biggest, you know, companies, CEOs, and they answer the phone. 
Um, so if anybody says people don't answer the phone anymore, probably stop listening to them. Right? Oh, I, know, I know it's, it's BS, right? Um, <laughs> as, a, as I say, like it's, I'm still very old school in that, in that way, right? And, and then, again, I don't want to generalize, but I typically find that more than millennials are afraid of the phone, mm. right? Where some of the older older folks that have come from that old school environment of like, literally being on the phone yeah. day, every day, they're, they're not as scared. Although, you know, again, I'm starting to see that some of them are moving away from having a conversation over the phone to sending an email or, you know, some sort of text message or, you know, something that doesn't have you know, voice related to yeah. it. Um, yeah. And it just, it baffles me. It really does. Yeah. You know, you can't, it's very hard to, you know, again, you know, like a, a communication over an email can can be interpreted the wrong way, right? Yeah. There's this thing about, you know, the tone of voice over email. Whereas if you have a conversation with someone over the phone, A, it's a lot quicker. And two, it might not, the tone of voice is very different, right? Yeah. To, to how they're perceived, I guess, through, through written comp, uh, communication. Absolutely. And, you know, I've coached Dave on a few things. Um, for those that don't know, Dave is, is one of Rob's <laughs> and my mates. And, uh, you know, he'll send me an objection. He said, I've just got this objection. What do I do? And my response would be, here's a response. I call him. <laughs> <Right? laughs> and I think the other thing is where people, you know, you know, sellers go, I don't want to pick up the phone. Often they either haven't been shown. So there's a lack of confidence. And I was saying that confidence comes from being competent, right? And when you're actually competent at something, you're okay and you, you're okay to execute it, right? It's like, you know, we watch kids when they, when they first start riding a bike, they need training wheels or they might fall over a couple of times. But once they get that confidence, they're off, right? It's, you know, with marketing, you know, I remember when I started doing my first lot of workflows, um, I didn't know what I was doing. Now I'm confident at it because I've done it over and over again. I've learned it, I've become competent. So that's nothing, there's no different to writing emails. It's no different to handling objections, you know, presenting to boards, um, picking up the phone. It's a confidence thing, but it, you've got to be competent. Mm. Um, and I'll take a competent seller than a cocky confidence seller any day, mm. right? Because there's substance in somebody that's confident versus mm. somebody that's just saying what they need to say. Because when you, when you pick at them, there's holes. Mm. Yeah. I'm not surprised. <laughs> I'm not surprised why you would take a competent seller yeah. any, any, any day of the week, right? So what sort of companies, I mean, are you currently working with? I know you mentioned before there, you know, sort of enterprise level and more at a medium level and, a, and, a, and a, um, at a small level as well. But the second part of the question is, do you find the approach is different? You know, when you're yeah. trying to reach to a, you know, a CEO of Telstra, I'm assuming is very different to, you know. Absolutely. Show, yeah. Yeah, so we look, we've got a couple, and we've, we've defined our um, market. We use what's called ideal customer profiles. So we're very clear on the companies that we serve because it's strong product market fit. Yeah. Um, Mid-market is, is a good place for us. You know, companies that are doing X revenue, sort of 50 to 300 mil, they've got, you know, bigger teams. They might have a sales enablement function already. Um, but we've also segmented our market. We've also got smaller companies that are probably doing say 10 to 25 mil because they're at a point where they want to grow. They want to have, have, you know, put some investment. So again, this is another area that I'll encourage all sellers. You've got to be really clear about the market that you serve. Even if you're serving, you know, different verticals, you should be clearly identifying, you know, what, what those verticals are because an SMB is behaves differently to a mid market, mid market behaves differently to enterprise. I've sold to all three. Again, enterprise have a completely different procurement process. 
there's about nine, you know, seven to nine people involved in a buying process. SMB, one to three. Mid-market, you know, again, very different. Then you've got onshore, offshore companies that aren't based in Australia, but they've got presence here, but the decisions are made overseas. Again, this is why you need to, you need to identify that because you could be chasing an opportunity or trying to engage with an opportunity, but you're never going to get the decision local. You're going to have to go offshore. And if you don't prepare for that, then your strategy has got a hole in it. And then you're going to have a delay in your decision-making process because they have to go offshore for a decision. Um, so again, that's one of the reasons why, you know, sellers, another tip, not just know you buy a persona, but really be clear about the market you're serving, the type of market, the type of size, the psychographic, the firmographic, you know, elements of the ICP. You know, I enjoy working with the larger ones because I love the strategy behind putting together a large deal with multiple stakeholders. There's a challenge with that. Um, that I love from a sales perspective, but I love working with the SMB market because the impact is is massive. You know, when we yeah, yeah when we when we get like a, a two or three percent conversion, that's really powerful for a business. That's an yeah. extra million bucks to the bottom line. That's mm. massive, right? That I love because I'm seeing the impact, you know, to somebody that's a couple of people that are probably founders, managing directors, they poured their their soul into the business. And they're getting that return now and they're able to grow. Like I'm working with this awesome business in Queensland at the moment. He's doing nine mil rev. We'll get him to about 10. And then he's got a goal to go to 50 within the next five years. Um, to help him on that journey is going to be awesome. Working with another business, they're trying to crack, you know, the billion unicorn status. They're very different businesses. Mm. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> There's different people in the businesses. Um, very different. Yes, it's rewarding working with the big ones. Um, but it's just so awesome when you see the impact in, in SMB as well. So, but just take it back a step, you know, for anyone listening, that's a seller that's trying to, you know, get more from the, you know, return on the time that they're investing, knowing your customer profile is, is very, very important because that and will dictate your buying process. And is that something that you'll typically assist with as well? So, yeah. you know, like right from the get go, I mean, I'm assuming this is all like foundational um, elements, I guess, that are required, right? Yeah. 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 We'll build playbooks. Like that's one of the key things that we build with organizations. We'll build a playbook for them, build a playbook for their ICP, their buy personas, their narrative, objection handling. Yeah. Um, we help them build that out and then help the team sort of embark on that journey to embed it into everything that they do. And how hands-on are you with the, you know, like, I mean, I guess getting all the documentation right, getting their mindset right, the coaching. Um, from there, like, you know, for what are sales IQ is, is like, how do you work with the teams? You know, is it is it ongoing coaching? Is it, you know, what, yeah. what's that ongoing piece look like? Yes, it's a combination. So our usual remit is is not under, like, is a minimum of three months because we are aiming for transformation mm. and you can't transform anything in a short period of time, right? Like, that's the reality. I've been working in change management and transformation type learning for the past, you know, 15 years since I was early twenties now, and you just can't rush through transformation. Mm. Um, you can invest more resources and people will come on the journey. Some will come quicker, but ultimately if you're trying to make change, you need to give the process the required time yeah. it takes to change and how hands on we get any tools that we build with an organization, any, you know, full framework sales process, we get on the front line and test it. So with one of our clients that you're working with, um, we've tested the sales process. We sold, you know, one of their own products and not a cheap sale, you know, it's a half a million dollar sale. 
just so we could make sure that the process that we worked with them in creating actually works, mm, mm. right? And the message resonated and we made some changes to it. And now they're at a point where they can scale. And that's why they're, they've, they've you know, partnered with your organization because they mm. need more top of funnel. Um, and then we're going to be helping them sort of, you know, hire more people with the playbook that's been developed for them. Mm-hmm. So that's the practitioner side of our business. Like we're very hands-on. The call sessions we do, if we're enabling a team and we're trying to help them with a playbook, man, we'll do live call sessions. Mm-hmm. I'll take a call. Somebody else will take a call and we test it. There's no better way to take the content that you create and see if it works. You just test it, <laughs> right? If it doesn't work, you change it. Right? Like, change it up, right? That's a great thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's the level of hands-on that we go with our clients. I love it. Love it. Just shifting gears a little bit. I mean, what's your core role in the business? You know, I know when we spoke earlier there that, you know, you uh, co-founded it, you're head of growth and, you know, you probably wear a few more hats as well, but like, what is your main function? Uh, Probably one of the things, uh, you know, from a CEO's perspective, I mean, the business is growing. I don't really see myself as a CEO. I'm I'm more of that, you know, I love the growth element. I love uh, tackling the growth strategies, you know, building our, our funnels, um, and working with clients. They're the things that I love, like the sales process. I love it. You know, Robert, I love it. I love, you know, that the process of engaging with a prospect, you know, having a discovery call, building out the business case for change, like that part, I have a lot of fun. And then the other part is actually getting my hands dirty, you know, building a workflow, a sales process, and then, add, you know, telling the tech team what they need to do in Salesforce to bring that to life. Um, they're the things that I love. So as we grow our business, our business is growing pretty fast. You know, we're hiring a few roles at the moment. I'll probably at some point, the business will, will, will grow to a point where it'll have somebody run it. And I'll just focus on what I do best, right? Play off my strengths, um, which is sell <laughs> and work with clients in that capacity. So um, I'm a big believer on working off each other's strengths. And I don't ever want to stop selling, man, because um, I love it and I've got so much more to learn. And if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life, right? Yeah, that's right, man. <laughs> uh, Luigi, to wrap up, man, how do we, where do we find you? I know you're on a podcast. Is it Instagram, LinkedIn, website? Yeah. Where is the best way to connect with you? Well, LinkedIn, pretty proud. If you type in Luigi, L-U-I-G-I on LinkedIn, I should be the first one that comes up. <laughs> but salesiqglobal.com. We have a number of podcasts for anyone in that revenue cycle from RevOps, the enablement, and then obviously my podcast. So you can jump on the website and, I'm happy to give you all the details, Rob, maybe put in the show notes, but LinkedIn's my place. I try to share content every day to help sellers be the best they can be. That was awesome. There was a lot of value in that. So I hope, uh, I'm sure our listeners got a lot out of it. Thank you again for jumping on the show. And uh, yeah, for our listeners, we'll put everything in the show notes as well. So man, thank you very much for jumping on. And I look forward to, you know, catching up face-to-face one day when we're all out of this prison that we're in. Yeah. Thanks, Rob. (laughs) Thanks for having me on the show, man. I appreciate you. Thank you.